There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 275. And today in the show, I'm joined by two men, Hank Forrester and Charles Evans, who I believe have tapped into one of the best ideas yet for helping us solve the hunter recruitment crisis. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today I'm joined by Hank Forster of the Quality Deer Management Association and Charles Evans from the Georgia Wildlife Federation to talk about one of the most critical issues facing our hunting community. Now, you're probably aware of this, but if not, here's the quick scoop. Hunter numbers have been dropping dramatically over the last decade or two, and demographic trends indicate that this is just going to continue to happen as large chunks of the current hunting population reach older ages and stop hunting, and then other Americans in general continue to become more urbanized and out of touch with the hunting tradition. This means we're looking at a hunter population in the future that's going to be seriously dwindling, and we already comprise less than 5% of the American population, and that number is just going to get smaller and smaller. And the smaller our numbers get, the less influence we're going to have on the future of wild places, wild animals, and the opportunity to hunt them. This is a big, big deal. And fortunately, my guests today think they've found a way to help us stop the bleeding. And I think they're on to something. Hank and Charles have begun piloting and spreading a mentorship program they're calling Field to Fork that's helping introduce adults to shooting, hunting, and preparing wild game. And they're having some very encouraging results. And not only that, but they're also starting to gin up interest from the non-hunting world, too, with press coverage in places like uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Fox News. um, A whole bunch of places are now talking about what these guys are up to and how they're hoping new people come into our hunting community. So today, I pulled Hank and Charles onto the podcast to help us better understand why this all matters, help us understand what they've created with the Field Before program, and finally, how all of us can help do our own part by mentoring a new hunter this year. So, man, this is some really important stuff. I hope you enjoy this chat, but I also hope you are inspired to join me in this mission. So, without further ado, let's take a quick break and then we'll get to chatting with Hank and Charles. All right, with me on the line now, I've got Hank Forster and Charles Evans. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Mark. 
Yeah, I uh, I have wanted to talk about this topic that we're going to cover today, hunter recruitment and all sorts of things related to what kind of generically is, is labeled R3. Um, I've wanted to cover this in more depth for a while. It's something that's that's both important um, at a macro level and then on a, on a micro level, to me personally, it's been something that um, I've recognized that I've been a lot of talk and not a lot of walk on it. I haven't done as good of a job as I need to um, when it comes to participating in these kinds of things. So I have kind of made a promise to myself this year that not only am I going to try to talk about this stuff a little bit more you know, with folks like you and with our audience, but I also want to find some ways to actually get out there and do this myself. So, so I guess I bring all this up to say I need some accountability partners. So Hank and Charles, can you be my accountability partners this year and make sure that I not just listen to what you guys have to say about this stuff today, but then I actually do it. Can you guys like shoot me an angry text message if I don't follow up on this stuff? (laughs) We can absolutely hold you accountable. And you know, admission is the first step to recovery. So (laughs) Um, you're on your way. Yes. Well on your way. I appreciate the, the kind words to kick it off. And I guess, Hank, um, can you can you just give us a little bit of a quick rundown, like a Cliff Notes introduction to to who you are and, and what you're doing with, with the QDMA and, and programs like what we're going to talk about here today? Absolutely. I'm Hank Forster. I'm the Hunting Heritage Programs Manager for the Quality Deer Management Association, or QDMA, and I think most of your listeners know, you know, we're a national conservation nonprofit that specializes in white-tailed deer. But uh, overseeing the hunting heritage programs, um, you know, working on anything related to hunter recruitment, R3, um, you know, anything to educate a new hunter to advocate for, you know, first-time and novice programs and programs that our members run. Um, But it's fairly an extended uh, segment of our work at QDMA. And, and a really rewarding one as well. But um, that's kind of what I oversee at QDMA. Okay, and Charles, what about you? I'm Charles Evans. I work for the Georgia Wildlife Federation. I'm the Georgia R3 coordinator, and we'll get into more of what that is in a minute, I'm sure, uh, and some of the partners of the position. But I got into wildlife originally because I love to hunt. And so I, I went through school, and I got two degrees in wildlife biology, uh, specifically deer biology. And... From there, I got heavily involved in the research realm. And when this R3 movement started really getting some momentum behind it and positions started popping up, I I jumped at the chance to get back into the reason I got into natural resources in the first place, which is because I like to hunt. So now my position revolves around increasing hunting participation and societal acceptance of hunting, specifically in Georgia, but I work at the national level as well. Okay. Okay. So, so then let's just expand on that then. Can you, Charles, give us a, a high level overview of what you mean when you say R3? So, so what's R3 and then why is this something that's, that's been particularly important recently? Yeah. So R3 is recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Um, and it's been around for quite some time now, almost 10 years. I think at first it was just R2 basically recruitment, retention, and then that reactivation was added on the backside. But R3 popped up because we've seen a decline in hunting participation since about the 1980s in this country. And the issue with that, I mean, aside from losing one of the most primal pastimes out there that we have left, you know, losing 
hunters directly affects our conservation funding. And so the wildlife conservation work that we can do on the ground around the country. And I think you've talked about the funding model before on some of your podcasts. Um, so that's very important. But when we say R3, we're talking about basically the process by which somebody self-identifies as a hunter. So you start with that recruitment stage where you become aware and interested in hunting and maybe you have a trial opportunity somebody uh, like yourself takes somebody out hunting for the first time and then they would either decide to continue hunting maybe they get another opportunity to go and they're retained with support from somebody else and ultimately they end up being retained without support and self-identify as a hunter at that point and then you might lapse at some point where you you have a kid or you go to school or whatever it might be and then if you got back into hunting after lapsing that would be what we call reactivation um, so that's the the whole process of it and the issue that we're running into uh, you know we have this culture of hunting in the united states that was formed by a lot of the rural traditions and values that that were traditionally held in our country and that's still kind of the culture of hunting today but the society the culture of society in general in the United States has shifted and hunters themselves have not, have not really shifted with that. And so we're seeing a lot of urbanization um, values change a lot and the culture of hunting, not keeping up and not adapting with that. And so we, we have a lot of people that are now raising their kids in inner cities and they didn't grow up hunting. So they're not teaching their kids how to hunt. And we lose that traditional pathway of mom, dad, your uncle, whoever it was teaches you how to hunt from a young age. And it's just part of life. I mean, you almost don't have a choice at some point, right. When you're growing up mm -hmm. and now we have, we have all of these different audiences that might be interested in hunting, but didn't have that Avenue to pursue it when they were younger. And now they're adults and, you know, they still don't have an Avenue or they might be embarrassed to ask one of their friends and only 5% of the U S hunts. So there's not a whole lot of people out there, um, somebody might know that hunt so it's run into this issue and so when we talk about r3 we're talking about all of the efforts we're using to try to increase hunting participation and societal acceptance of hunting so it might be anything from just some marketing efforts to try to uh, make society see hunting as a, a an activity that might be relevant to them to a an all-encompassing program like field to fork that we're going to talk about later where we actually teach people how to hunt yeah so, so like you mentioned, this kind of idea of, of R3 or, or R2 as maybe it kicked off like a decade ago or so. I, I feel like I've been following along um, and, and been aware of these kinds of efforts. Do you think that – are we failing when it comes to R3 at a high level? Like this, this – people have known there's this demographic shift, this cultural shift. We've been talking about it for a while now and it's not been like a secret. There's been big media outlets talking about the importance of – trying to get more hunters out there and trying to do all these things. Um, but we're still here 10 years later talking about the same stuff and the, the numbers have not improved dramatically. We had a little bump up a handful of years ago with one of the surveys, but now I feel like the most recent one came out again. We're back down. Um, how would you quantify or qualify the efforts to this point? Um, so I'm going to tiptoe around this one a little bit because I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be uh, more blind. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I mean, we are failing to an extent, and we certainly were 
uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, state agencies and federal agencies are the majority of organizations that are are handling a lot of the wildlife management and trying to recruit hunters in the United States. At least that's that's how it was. You know, they're the ones that manage the resource ultimately and set the regulations and the hunting licenses and everything else. And government can be extremely slow to change and adapt. Um, and but they are starting to catch up and evidence of that is, is just the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you, you know, when I started this role in December of 2015, I was the first state R3 coordinator to, to ever be hired on in the nation. And now I think there's over what 40 different States Hank with R3 coordinators now. That's I mean, a good question. It's, it's something it's over 30 now, but it, it's grown like wildfire. So this is a, a growing field and organizations, uh, including the state and federal agencies and all of the industry partners and the non-governmental organizations like KDMA and Georgia Wildlife Federation, are really starting to step up to the plate and try to produce solutions to this. But we are a little bit behind on that. However, you know, you mentioned some of the survey data. Yes, nationally, we've gone down. Uh, but in some individual states, we've been going up. And, and Georgia is one of those examples. We've been trending upwards in participation numbers since 2009. Huh. So, Hank, what would you add? I would I would say that we are failing. Um, I, I think we're making strides. I think there's been cultural changes within state agencies. We've seen some shifts in the way we do business, you know, in terms of hunting license sales and availability of them. Um, but currently less than 5% of Americans hunt. Uh, we, but we have this culture, uh, you know, I, I, I fear, and I, I think it's true that hunters have become insular. You talk to hunters today, and of course you're going to get the, oh, there's too many hunters. Uh, you know, there's not a decline in hunters where I hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to, of course, get some of that. Uh, but also you get this, well, everybody I know who, uh, everybody I know hunts and it's like, well, if four and a half percent of the U S population, you know, 16 or older hunt, there's no way that everybody, you know, hunt. So are we choosing not to discuss hunting in front of audiences that we might not know are accepting of it? Um, but you know, I, I think we can make, uh, great strides very quickly in the R3 realm. If, if 30% of all hunters, you know, in the United States today mentored a new hunter this year, we wouldn't be talking about a decline next year. So it's an easily fixable problem, but it's going to create, um, you know, a concise effort, uh, you know, kind of rebranding and remarketing hunting. Um, and of course, taking down a lot of the barriers that we've created. Um, but, you know, hunting appeals to large audiences. And, and we know from polls, that over 80% of Americans approve hunting for food, and so few are doing it, you know, 4.5% maybe. So there's low-hanging fruit. There's opportunity out there, but we've got to figure out how to create a lot more hunters. Um, And we all have to understand the consequences of becoming a vast minority or becoming, um, you know, less relevant in society. Yeah, I think that last point is... 
is so important. I mean, to, to you, you said it. You get this comment from a lot of folks saying, "Well, I don't see a, an issue with there not being enough hunters where I am," or people saying, "Well, I'd like it if there's less hunters because that means less competition for land access and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." I already have too many people hunting right next to me or trespassing or doing this or doing that. Um, so, so selfishly, a lot of times we kind of wish we had, you know the 20,000 acre piece of public land all to ourselves or wish that there wasn't someone posted up all around our private property or whatever it might be. But like you said, there are serious consequences to dwindling numbers of hunters that, you know, it's just worth repeating and kind of pounding in our heads because it's, it's some serious shit. Like this is not, uh, some small issue. And I'll kind of, let me, I'll lay out the high level and I'd love for you guys to maybe drill into this a little bit more, but I think, Charles, you alluded to this. Number one, you've got a funding issue. Hunter license sales fund a tremendous amount of wildlife conservation habitat-related work. So the stuff that, that keeps our states, our state wildlife agencies functioning and keeping quality habitat out there and, and managing these resources, that is primarily funded by hunters. So if hunter license sales continue to go down, that funding goes down the quality of care we can provide to the resource goes down. It, it grossly simplified. That is one big issue. And then number two, on the PR issue side, the the fewer hunters that we have, the smaller number of advocates there are in the country for this way of life, for the, the privileges and, and rights that we have as hunters. So I think anyone, if you pay attention to the news, a couple times a year, something horrible pops up in the media that gets blown all across the web and sometimes the mainstream media and gives hunters a really bad name. I mean, you can look at the Cecil the Lion incident, so many other things over the years where we just, as a, as a whole community, we get skewered by one bad apple or one bad thing that even maybe it wasn't, maybe it was misrepresented, whatever it might be. There are these things that can very quickly change public opinion about something um, that can lead to real changes that negatively impact us or the things we care about just based off of one bad PR incident. If we have fewer and fewer people out there that can stand up and say, hey, this is the real deal. This is what hunting really is like, or this is what I've experienced. If we have not even just hunters, but hunters and then people have a positive um, experience with hunters, if that number keeps dwindling, you know, just more and more opportunity for our privileges to, to disappear. So that is like at the highest level, the things that scare me about this. Um, but I very I simplified that. Hank or Charles, would you guys add anything more as to why this matters um, to the future of what we all love to do? Well, can I can I just jump in and reiterate? You know, you, you talk about one bad apple. Uh, we have to remember what I said earlier. We are fortunate to uh, you know we are seeing some of the highest public approval rates of hunting in this country that have ever been documented. 80% of Americans approve of hunting for food. But we also need to be cognizant. Uh, you know, Charles touched on R3 as a marketing. You know, it, it's marketing. It's, it's a culture thing. I'm the guy at QDMA who says, remember the 95%. Think about what you post or what you're doing how is the 95% of Americans that don't hunt going to perceive it or view it? And so, you know, at, from you know, QMA as an example, if people go to our website, I want them to look at it and say, 
if they're not a hunter, say, it's not for me, but these people are doing good. And I want them to support it. And it's the same thing when you're talking about hunting or you're sharing hunting. We see this one person, this bad apple, do something and this public outcry. And then we assume that we have to be on the defensive or we have to be quiet and, and not show what we're doing. But what it really means is that we need to be cognizant of being respectful and, and showing hunting uh, in a good light and, and making sure that, that we're a good ambassador for what we love to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what the public needs to remember. But you're, you know, from the PR standpoint, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there's an 11% excise tax that goes to the federal government that's allotted to the states solely based on the square mileage of the state and the number of hunting license they sell. And that's, a, you know, the majority of the conservation funding. And then from a state agency level and the hunting license level, you know, almost 100% of those funds are going directly to your state agency. And they're the ones that are on the ground managing the game. And in that same, you know, on the ground level as hunters are really the on the ground manager of wildlife in a state and doing a public service there as well as, um, you know, you're very familiar with Shane Mahoney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he's quantifying the, the wild harvest, it's the wild harvest initiative, but he's quantifying, you know, the, the amount of meals we pull off of these public or, or private rural wildlife, you know, um, wilderness or, or natural environment. And, and that's another thing that we're, you know, taking away from that overtake. Yeah. You, um, you touched on a few of the things, why this matters, like at a macro level, um, why, you know, we might want to, you know, think about these things, take steps towards addressing these things. But what about personally, Hank, why do you care about this personally? Um, other than just getting, you get a paycheck to work on this kind of stuff, but do you, do you have anything a little bit closer to, to who you are that makes this work meaningful to you? Yeah, um, I grew up in Western North Carolina, um, and no one in my family hunted. Uh, but uh, Western North Carolina has a great culture of like you know it's the original frontier or whatever. It has that kind of mountain man and Native American history and the Daniel Boone. Uh, you know, I was you know half hour from Boone, North Carolina, and so I had an uncle who hunted. Um, but my dad doesn't hunt, doesn't hunt today. Um, but I, I was around and I saw enough of it to know that I wanted to do it. And I was always fascinated with Indians and mountain men. Um, you know, I've got childhood photos with like pop guns and headdresses and all that kind of stuff. But I aspired to hunt and, um, you know, my family didn't do it. But I had a neighbor up the street a few doors down um, that said that I could go with them anytime they were going. And so I was fortunate enough to find a mentor growing up that, uh, you know, allowed me to learn to hunt. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm a hunter today, most likely. And, um, you know, I understand that I think this is a natural desire in most humans. I think, you know, um, you know, Stephen Renault has talked about it a lot about, you know, it's, it's, kind of more unusual that people don't hunt than hunt because mm-hmm. of the you know entire human history you know you weren't able to live in a in most capacities without hunting or gathering for food and so i think it's a natural um desire that i was born with just like my bird dog 
was a bird born with a desire to hunt birds. And, you know, I read a book of what not to do. You know, it is pretty much, you, this is in your dog, don't screw it up. And, and I think that humans are no different. I think we're disconnected. Uh, much of what Swanee referenced about the urbanization and, and we're just moving further away from the natural world. But um, it was a natural desire for me and I was fortunate to have somebody show me the ropes and I hope that I can help others and inspire current hunters uh, to get out there and do the same for others. Yeah, I think you're 100% right about that. There being this latent um, desire in all of us, I think, even if you're not introduced to hunting, it seems many times when you talk to someone who finally is introduced to it, um, they, and I'm sure you guys will talk about this with some of the experiences you've had, but from a lot of folks I've talked to, they, they they speak about that thing they never really realized was lying there lurking underneath the you know, their, their daily urbanized life. And then all of a sudden they go out and they participate in something like this and they tap into something that's very, very human. Um, and it's really compelling and they never realized there was this other way of engaging with the natural world. And, and once they do many cases, they're hooked. Um, and I feel like that kind of, like you said, we just need to help people tap into that. That's already there within them. Just give them the opportunity to do that. Um, so we, we didn't even touch on, on one other issue that revolves around, the whole hunting recruitment topic, which is in addition to changing cultural uh, norms and demographics and urbanization, all that, then there's also the whole demographic shift as far as age and this huge group of hunters beginning to age out soon. So not only do we have changing cultural things going on, but then we also have a big portion of the hunting public right now, which is uh, approaching an older age class that uh, people just start stopping hunting. They they begin to stop hunting once they get into those, what is it, low 70s, mid 70s, somewhere around there. Is that right, Hank or, or Charles? Yeah, it's around 65. Okay. Um, but there's there's several graphics out there looking at the data where it, it basically just shows a cliff where people drop off. And that, that hump is moving across as the years go. And eventually, I mean, we're starting to see some people pick up in the millennial age class, which is really good. But if the trend continues, we're, we're probably in some pretty big trouble. Um, so hopefully that trend does not continue. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's what we're here working on. Yeah. And I was going to say that's that's why, why I really want to talk to you guys because I feel like what you guys have tapped into with the Field of Fort program and some of the efforts you've done around that, I feel like you're tapping into one of our best opportunities to avoid some of these doomsday scenarios with hunter numbers just falling off the cliff. Uh, so let's, we've established what the problem is and we kind of already knew that, but it's good to get a little more context, I guess, but let's talk, let's talk solutions. I feel like field to fork is one of the most compelling solutions I've seen yet. The way you guys have been able to develop this, the success you've seen, um, gosh, if we could scale something like that, it gets me really excited. So what is, what is field of fork? It's been all over the wall street journal in some, like the guardian overseas. I think maybe I saw it all Fox news covered it. Um, getting hips, turning hipsters into hunters is like the, the headline of choice lately. Um, what have you guys created? What is this program? <laughs> Sometimes we call Hank, Hank the hipster. Um, <laughs> if you can see a picture of him, you know why. But, uh, <laughs> so we, we started Field to Fork. Uh, there was a couple of programs going on like this. Basically what Field to Fork is, is it's a program to take adults that have an interest in hunting for food or for ecological reasons 
and teach them how to hunt and give them a, a welcoming hand into it, helping them continue to hunt. And so there's a lot of data to suggest that people that sometimes might be termed as locavores, but we kind of expand that definition and, and just include anybody that wants all natural food um, and preferably locally sourced. There's a lot of data to suggest that they would be interested in hunting if they had the opportunity to do so. And so one day Hank and I were sitting at lunch at this Jamaican place in Athens. I've got some really spicy stuff, but we were, <laughs> we were talking about what's our, our pie in the sky idea for an R3 program, you know, something where we actually take people and take them through the whole process. And both of us are very passionate about food. Hank is an incredible cook and then I've just, I've been eating venison my entire life. I've actually never bought beef from a grocery store before. Um, and so we're, we're both passionate on the food side of it. And living in Athens, Georgia, which is a college town, you know, it's got a lot of farm-to-table restaurants, and there's a big farmer's market presence and a lot of organic farms around here. There's this perfect audience for what we were talking about doing, taking these people that are interested in all-natural food and getting them out there. And so we kind of batted around the idea of what does this program look like? And we looked at some examples, and there was one going on in Wisconsin. Uh, Keith Warnke, who works for the state agency, is running a Learn to Hunt Food program up there that's expanded a lot. So we talked to him a little bit. And then QDMA was already partnered with a program doing something similar to this in Kentucky that was actually called Field to Fork. So we called Kentucky uh, up and asked them, how they were doing it and we kind of took some of their ideas and they were actually generous enough to let us use their name because uh, it's a very catchy name and we put it all together and we went down to the farmer's market and set up a booth they were nice enough at the Athens farmer's market to give us a booth for free since we were a nonprofit, and we just handed out samples of venison just opened up with would you like to try some venison and got people to come to the table that way and it was crazy we didn't know what to expect um it, but it was wild how many people were willing to try venison. I mean, we had vegetarians and vegans trying venison. Uh, they, they were fine with it because they lived a life free of animal welfare concerns. Uh, we had pretty much everybody that came by the table would try venison. And approaching hunting in that for the food or for the ecological reasons manner was really appealing to pretty much this whole audience. I don't think we had any negative experiences except for that one girl you pissed off, Hank. Oh, yeah. Uh, what happened there? <laughs> no, Charles, Charles is absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, you probably run into it every day, but, you know, I'd moved to Athens a couple years previously and, you know, meeting a, a new group of people. You know, what do you do? I work in conservation. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, what are you doing? Um, I'm going hunting. And I go, oh, I thought you said you worked in conservation. Or, um, you know, I'd been to the farmer's market and they were doing chef demonstrations. And one Saturday I was watching a lady make ricotta cheese. And I was thinking, man, we should just bring in a deer and break it down as a chef demonstration. But I didn't have the confidence at the time to be the person who broke down the deer in front of, you know, 40 people at the farmer's market or whatever. But um, we decided to go set up that booth, and, and we didn't know what to expect. But, of course, the number one question we get, uh, you know, from current hunters is, oh, I bet that was the lion's den or, or whatnot. But it, uh, nothing further from the truth. Um, 
gotten a few eye rolls over the years, but it's probably offering me to a vegetarian or vegan um, and all power to them. That's their choice. And I totally respect that. Um, and, and then we've had, you know, a couple people that no one will confront you in front of people, but, you know, after hours or whatever, just a couple people have said something, but they just weren't willing to look at the facts. You know, we often talk to people about, you know, the same reasons they're vegetarians or vegans are the same reasons we hunt. Uh, you know, um, we have a lot of shared values. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, we've taken, uh, you know what, I mean, at least five or six vegan or vegetarian, ex-vegetarians or vegans uh, through the program, maybe a couple more this year. Yeah, I mean, we've got people that, that still identify as vegetarians that hunt now, but yeah. they're, they're fine with, basically, they're against factory farming, mm-hmm. uh, which I totally get. But you cannot be vegetarian or vegan and be against hunting. It is absolutely not possible if you think through the logic, because... If you're eating, uh, I mean, if you're vegetarian or vegan, you're probably eating some soy-based products like tofu. And if you're eating something that's made out of soybeans, you're contributing to the death of deer. Mm -hmm. Because you've either got to hunt those fields pretty heavily or you have to use depredation permits to keep your beans alive. I mean, or else deer will wipe them out, at least in the southeast. So, I mean, that's something that a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you got to kill deer to have the plants. So if you're going to be a vegetarian, you might as well participate in the whole process yeah yeah so we also learned that most of the vendors at the farmer's market are deer hunters yeah that's good they eat a lot of venison now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. 
So you guys brought in venison. You've got a table. You got a booth at the farmers market. Uh, what kind of walk me through how you were actually taking food samplers and converting them to participants in a program? Do you guys have like a pamphlet describing this program? What was the program you guys were talking to these people about? Um, what was the next step after getting kind of the, there's this like venison diplomacy you hear people talk about, which I love, which is, you know, providing this positive interaction with a hunter by way of sharing food. So you guys did that. What was the next step? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we talked about, you know, our three societal acceptance and, you know, increased participation in hunting and, you know, QMA, we've got goals through mentoring. We've got sharing goals of venison. We got donating goals, but still to fork touches on, both kind of the sharing and the mentoring. I mean, you know, we can't quantify the value of having a pro hunting focused booth at the farmer's market and, and all these hundreds of samples we hand out at each market. But, um, you know, even the people who don't take us up on it usually smile and say, you know, it's not for me, but I'm glad you're here or something of that sentiment. But, um, you know, we, uh, we offer the samples. We, I cook some backstraps, some bratwurst, some jerky, We've done breakfast sausage on the Saturday morning markets. Um, but, you know, we lead off with, hey, would you like to try some venison? I usually start with, you know, do you eat much venison? And we've been, I've been surprised, I shouldn't speak for Charles, but I've been surprised at how many people are saying that they're eating venison. And, and many of them aren't hunters, so they're obviously getting it from a hunter or some other way. But a lot of people, and and maybe there's a little bit of that, you know, just like a new hunter kind of, We'll pretend they know a little bit more about hunting. Maybe it's just a you know a cool club kind of thing where you know they they say they eat a, a more venison than they do, but it seems like they're getting a hold of venison. And then you know I'll ask them, well, have you ever thought about procuring it yourself, or you know have you ever been interested in hunting? And and um, you know you get different reactions. Um, but you know there's some college studies, and Charles will know more than I do. But some studies out of Clemson showed that. Was it sixty percent of college students were interested in hunting? It, it was something along those lines. I don't have. I mean, the numbers wow. in front of me. so there's there's this huge swath of the population that's interested, and by making it attractive and offering samples, and um, you know, we filled up a program in two hours, the or three hours, the first Saturday we ever set up at the farmers market to a waiting list. That year, uh, we only took eight participants. But, um, you know, we filled up in, in one market. But we, we went to a few just to fill it out. Uh, we have a, a Saturday market that's at a, a local park, and it's kind of the larger market. And then we have a Wednesday market at a local brewery. And as you can imagine, we get a lot of people that volunteer to help out at the Wednesday market or whatever. But um, it's the 80-20 rule, and like 80% of our participants come from Saturday morning. And I don't know if it's just – the farmer's market on Wednesday is an excuse to go drink a couple beers or it's just a, a different dedication level for somebody to get up at 8 a.m. And, and make it to a farmer's market. I don't know. But um, that, that's that been one interesting trend. We don't miss we don't miss any Wednesday markets, though. Yeah. Not when we're recruiting, for sure. Um, <laughs> even though they're not affected. But it it is it's pretty interesting. So we, we hand out that fact sheet. And then we get our list of participants that want to sign up. And we actually do like a pre-questionnaire to make sure we're picking the right people because we do have limited capacity uh, for this program. For example, this year we took 15 people um, in the, the Athens Field to Fork event. And we make sure that we're picking people that, 
that want to do it for the food or the ecological reasons and people that actually haven't hunted before or at least have very limited experience. And then we bring them all in and we do multiple training nights. So we want people to come through the program and it, even if they don't continue to hunt, at least understand hunting a little bit better and understand why hunting is important to conservation. So we do weekday evening training nights where we talk about conservation history and how hunting relates to conservation historically and present day. Um, and then we talk about deer biology and how the biology relates to hunting strategy. We take them out in the woods and we show them how to read deer sign and just take them through the, the entire training process there. And the most importantly, we do shooting training. And for this program, we were trying to decide what to do. And we settled on crossbows as our, our weapon of choice for field of fork. And there's a few different reasons for that. One of them was we kind of decided that, you know, this, this participant base might not be as open to firearms initially. Uh, initially, we thought that archery equipment might be more palatable mm-hmm. to them. There's the stigma that surrounds firearms, uh, especially right now in the United States. And that actually turned out to be true with quite a few of the participants. We'd have people come up to the booth and think about, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't shoot anything with a gun. And we tell them we're going to train them on a crossbow. And they're like, oh, well, maybe I could participate in that and take a flyer, you know. <laughs> we heard from several participants as well that went through the whole program that they appreciated the fact that it was done with a crossbow. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. But we we put them through that whole training process. And then we have a hunt weekend. And I should say through the whole trainings, we incorporate the food aspect because that's the main theme of the program is, you know, sourcing your own all natural protein. So Hank does venison tacos, or I think we did bratwurst one night, venison burgers. Burgers, We've done kind of a little bit of everything. But we go into that hunt weekend and we pair them with mentors. So the first year that we did it, which would have been 2016, we were trying to decide who to pair them with. And the ones we came up with the quickest that that seemed like it would be the best fit were the uh, UGA deer lab graduate students. So the university of Georgia has a deer research program here in Athens. that's pretty well known. And obviously all of those grad students would have a a pretty decent knowledge of hunting and uh, deer biology and be able to answer any questions and be fairly open-minded as well. We wanted to be kind of touchy this first year just to see how it went. So, we, uh, I contacted them because that's where I went to school, and we got the grad students on board, and they served as the mentors, and we took everybody out. And then following years, we were trying to figure out how to make it more sustainable, and we just used the Athens uh, Quality Deer Management Association brands. We approached them with this idea and used those members, and they were all on board. I mean, I mean, they were a little hesitant at first, I think, but then they really jumped in, and they've taken ownership of the Athens program now. But we... We pair them with the mentors and we take them out on properties all around Athens here, some in town, some just outside of town. And um, hopefully we get some some harvest, but either way, they get a pretty neat experience. And then we continue on with follow-up opportunities. We encourage those mentors to take them back out. There's property here at QDMA that they can hunt for the rest of the season. And then we have a what we call a culinary social. It's a follow-up dinner. We drink some beer and some wine cook some of the venison that they harvested themselves and have them tell their stories. Um, and, it, and we can get some of the stories a little bit later here, but 
one thing that I did want to mention is you mentioned earlier talking about how it's, you finally feel like you're human. You know, it's this, this activity where you, you didn't realize you had it in you, or you didn't realize how it would feel. And we hear that a lot from the participants, you know, a lot of these people are very outdoor participants and they, they might've hiked or camped or kayaked or whatever it might be, which is all passive interaction with nature. But when you're hunting, you're truly involved in the, the natural cycle. And we have just off the top of my head, one of the participants, we've got her on video saying this, she was talking about how she harvested her first deer uh, with that crossbow. And she made the perfect sound effect about just how it sounded and everything. And she talked about how it was sad, but at the same time, she was really happy. And that the feeling that she felt was that it was like, she was finally human, hmm. which we just thought was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So let me walk that back a little bit just to throw in some detail, but you know, what Charles was talking about with, you know, recruiting the deer lab and, um, you know, our first year we recruited a kind of younger demographic than we've run into the last couple of years. And, uh, and that may have been due to the second year we scheduled our hunt date on the day of a home UGA football game. We just went <laughs> with the second weekend of bow season. Um, you know, we use crossbows because of the palatability, but also we want to take, uh, you know, advantage of our early archery seasons where deer are still more patternable. Uh, the, you know, it's actually, unfortunately, sometimes it's too hot, but you're not dealing with cold weather. There's still a lot of daylight in the afternoons after work. But, um, you know, the difference between Field of Fork and a lot of the other programs out there is we diligently work to try to make this program sustainable and replicable. So um, we called around on tax ID maps and got permissions of properties around Athens to hunt, um, many of them within the belt loop. And we talked about, you know, the urbanization of our population and stuff. But, you know, I'm one to argue that we overlook a lot of our best opportunity, especially to mentor new hunters in these um, you know, kind of suburban and urban areas. Uh, you know, we have whitetails. I, I live in downtown Athens, you know, obviously a small college town, but there's deer in my backyard um, that would be legal to harvest. I'm not going to do it because of roads and stuff like that. But, you know, we found opportunities in pockets around town. We used a process that we could show them how. We've uh, utilized Onyx Maps and given our participants a subscription to Onyx Maps, which is awesome nice. for, you know, locating potential properties, as you know, with the property owner, you know, lines and, and information. I mean, you can figure out who has five or ten acres that might give you permission to hunt. But, um, you know, we, we went through these steps to try to make it replicable to the participant and also a program that you, we could scale. And... Um, and with the recruitment of the UGA Deer Lab participants that year, I think Charles, we had four successful harvests out of eight, uh, really seven, who really took the program seriously. And we found that it's, again, the 80-20 rule. You know, 80% of our participants are continuing to hunt. And I think that's as good as we'll ever get. We, we might have had a little higher than that this year, but... You know, some people go through it, they experience it, and it, it's just not something that really just inspires them to go the next day. And then you have the other ones who, who hunt 30 days that year. 
But, um, you know, the Deer Lab students didn't allow for that follow-up opportunity. And, and the success of the program is not in the organized events, but in the opportunity for these participants to utilize the potential access, to check out crossbows and gear, um, but to allow them to continue to grow as a hunter. And, and we talked about how you work your way through, uh, you know, becoming and self-identifying as a hunter. And I really believe that's two different confidence levels. They obviously take time to, um, you know, to, to gain the full confidence. But one is they have to be confident to take care of an animal or they're not going to go hunting and they're not going to shoot at anything they can't take care of. One of the biggest fears is they don't want to waste an animal's life or the meat. And so if you don't make them confident or give them a resource, so, you know, mentorship comes in a multitude of levels. Some people need, you know, multiple years of hands-on, you know, hunting. And others uh, may need one afternoon in the stand and then have your cell phone number in case they need help dragging something out or, or, or cleaning it. Um, and the second confidence level is I believe that self-identifying as a hunter is a confidence level to, to be like, I can do this and do this on my own. That's confidence. And so we, we understand that it takes time to build that, and the program's built. We brought in the Athens QMA branch to serve as mentors. They're opening up their access. I'm a, I'm a big proponent. I believe the quickest way we can affect access is by invites. You know, I can't do a lot to change the opportunities for public land deer hunting. We can try to make public lands better. We can try to make more opportunity. But the quickest way we affect access is is offering the opportunity for somebody to come hunting with us. And so that's what we've asked these mentors to do. Some of them have opened up their properties. But we've all realized that this is hugely rewarding to everyone involved, and it may be their most rewarding hunt. Yeah, and ours as well. Have either one of you guys had uh, any experiences you could share personally about what it's been like as a mentor uh, being a, being a part of this at all? Sure. Yeah. The so the first year, one my my whole life I've kind of mentored people, you know, throughout college and high school and everything, and taken new people hunting, and I've always found it rewarding. And a lot of people that we run into, existing hunters, and a lot of these organizations traditionally you know, they'd be willing to take a kid hunting or a handicapped person hunting or a veteran hunting. But if you just ask them to take some 25 year old, you know, that was fully capable of going on their own, aside from knowledge, they kind of turn their nose up at it, which is the wrong mentality because that 25 year old is actually the person that has the authority in their own lives to start hunting, might have kids one day of their own that they would teach how to hunt. They'd probably have discretionary income that they can use to buy the equipment to get out there. So we've been kind of shifting towards adults. And it's really cool when you take somebody. Uh, the first year we did this program in 2016, uh, I served as a mentor for a few people during that program. And I took one guy out. Um, Tell him the rundown real quick. Just I feel like we should talk about the kind of different people we're getting Oh, the different people in the program? Yeah, that year. Uh, that, what was it that year? 18 to what? 18 to 57? Yeah. So, so throughout the three years we've been doing the Athens program, we've had from 18 years old to 70-year-old participants. Male, female, we've had everything from uh, people that are professors and researchers at the university 
to roofers, to chefs, to organic farmers, teachers, whatever it might be. I mean, just covering the whole engineers spectrum. Yeah, race car engineer uh, who's now teaching his kids how to hunt. But I took this guy out who was an undergrad, and there two undergrads came to the program the first year that were actually roommates. And this guy's name was, was it Evan? Evan. Yeah, his name was Evan. And he'd never hunted before. He's from a pretty urban area. You know, you could tell, like, bees swarming around him and things like that. Maybe kind of an actual him. hipster here. Maybe, yeah. maybe an actual one. <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate being labeled as that. Though. Maybe he would. I don't know. But anyways, we take him out on this property. And like Hank said, we're using these urban properties. I'd literally knocked on this lady's door after I looked up the information, the tax map information, and just gotten permission to hunt her 20 acres right there beside her house. You know, I went and hung a stand up there. I hung a double uh, hang-on set in the cedar tree. But we walk out there, and I'm explaining how everything is going to go to him. And so we get in this hang-on set. And what I was kind of surprised about is he was way more still than I was. I was over there messing around with my phone, and he was rock-solid, locked in, looking for deer the whole time. And we ended up, I mean, every time a squirrel would jump around, you know, he'd he'd slowly turn around and ask me if that was one. And it it was pretty cool to see the reaction. But eventually we had these two does and a fawn start working their way down. Uh, We were kind of in some water oaks right there. And then there was this opening just up the way. They were working their way down to the opening and they were going to bypass us. And so I I just kind of wrote them off. I was like, it looks like they're going to walk right by out of range. They're heading another direction. I go back to playing around on whatever I was doing. I don't know, Facebook or something, you know, being a terrible mentor. And, uh, he goes, he goes, and I was whispering to him, I was telling him something. He was like, be quiet. They're coming back. I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) That's great. These deer start working their way back and they're going to step out perfectly in the shooting lane that I cut at about 30 yards. And, I, I had him get the crossbow up and everything and take the safety off. Um, I went ahead and ranged where the deer was going to step out. I told him where to, to hold on the reticle. And the deer stepped out, and I did a little mouth bleat and stopped her, and he just hammered her. I mean, squeezed that trigger perfectly, and he was calm the entire time until the second he pulled the trigger. Right after that, he just started shaking like a leaf. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me, you know, it, it's incredible, no matter what background you come from, and what your life experiences are, you're still going to have that same reaction, that same rush when you, you squeeze that trigger initially. It, it was pretty cool to see what I've always felt, you know, in somebody else, especially in an adult when they get that excited about harvesting their first animal. And both of those roommates harvested that first year. They lived with, what, five other guys? Yeah, so I'll tell the other side of that story. And gosh, I mean, you know, Charles was telling a story that the the first time hunter knew something he didn't, and uh, he called me an incredible chef. So I'll say Charles is an incredible hunter, but I, I did the same thing with Sam, his roommate. We were out here in QDMA at a redneck blind that had a little food plot in front of it that was fenced off until until uh, we were ready for archery season. But um, this little little four-pointer or spike came in, and um, I just caught a glimpse of it out in one of the windows, and uh, it came in right on the on the wall side that he was sitting on. So we had to switch seats, and you know, stone cold switch seats. 
um, made a good shot and the deer ran off and we get down and we go and look and the blood has just a dark hint to it. And I was like, Oh, we might, you know, and, and it, he had made a great shot. It had just gone a little bit back. And, um, but you know, he wasn't accounting for the angle of the, the deer as much, but it was still a great shot. And I said, well, we better give this deer some time. And he goes, it's right there. And it hadn't gone 50 yards. <laughs> it was in the next little opening over. And, uh, yeah, exactly what Charles was getting at. These two guys, I think, live with five guys. They put two deer in their freezer. Um, Evan did donate a backstrap back to our culinary social, so we ate a backstrap of his deer at the culinary social that year. But, I mean, these guys must have been, you know, the cool kids on campus. I mean, just, you know, 50, 100 pounds of venison in the freezer. Um, but we, you know, over the years, I guess, I've sat with four or five first-time harvests now. Um, we both hunted with a guy that uh, named Dan, and he didn't want to wear shoes to hunt. Um, he wanted <laughs> really? to feel the earth under him. Can I tell that story? Sure. Okay, so <laughs> this was this was literally the first hunt of the program, and I, I paired myself with this guy that we ended up calling Shoeless Dan. Really cool guy. Uh, he's a, a nutritionist and very intelligent, um, but he he wanted to get into hunting so he could source his own protein, so he fit the mold perfectly. But we're driving around, and we're dropping off the other hunting pairs at their respective locations. Then we get to where we were going to go, which was this ground blind. But we had about a, I don't know, a five or 600-yard walk in, you know, so we get out of the truck, and I notice he's not wearing shoes. I was like, Dan, are you going to put some shoes on? And he goes, no, no, I think I'm going to go barefoot. I just, I like to feel the forest under my feet. And I was like, okay. Wow. So we go bebopping down through the woods, and uh, we get to the ground blind. And I've, I've set up this blind and brushed it in and everything, you know, a few weeks prior, and I've got two chairs in there. So we get in, and I set his chair up for him, and he goes, I, I think I'd like to sit on the ground. And I was like, okay, so I moved the chair out of the way. And he, he sits on the ground because he wanted to be more connected to the ground. You know, About 10 minutes later, he goes, I think I might try that chair now. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> I set up the chair for him. And in about 30 minutes, the mosquitoes find us. Eesh. And, I mean, they are. we're doing this in early season in Georgia, you know. They are wearing his feet out. I mean, I've never uh. seen so many mosquitoes on somebody's feet before because he wasn't wearing <laughs> shoes. But he, it was, it was hard to not laugh. But he had, he was a trooper about it, and he had such a great experience. We had a doe come through at thirty yards at last light, and he couldn't quite get a shot on her, but he got the whole rush of you know trying to get in the right position and everything. And he ended up harvesting later in the program, but that just. I mean, it kind of shows you that we we have all these different people from different walks of life that that have unique perspectives about things, but the, they're all there because of that common goal to eat more sustainably and eat, be more in tune with nature, which is pretty unique for a program. Yeah. Yeah, and so Dan and I got his first deer a, a week or two later. Um actually a fawn he chose i told him that you know if, that, if he'd be happy with that deer he could take it and he did and uh you know he took the kidneys the liver the heart i mean we sat there and we processed the whole thing um and you know super stoked but yeah i mean you 
these, you know, there are people who want to hunt from different backgrounds than possibly me or you, but um, their desires to hunt can be as genuine or in some cases maybe more genuine than the person who was handed, you know, a rifle at 10 years old or, or whatever. Um, I mean, um, you know, we can tell stories on them, but these, these people are awesome friends um, and, and great hunters and, and really a joy to be around. And, and we've created this community around Athens that we, we have, uh, you know, at least 50 people who have been involved with the program at least. And um, it, it's really cool. And it's inspiring to to all parties. You get, you hear the participant talk about how infectious it is to be around a group of passionate people and obviously passionate about hunting and then from the same side. Um, and, and I would urge, you know, any listener to go read that Wall Street Journal article. It, it of course, has some spin on it. Um, it the spin, I think, helped it. It obviously um, created... Uh, it went kind of viral and it was probably a lot to the catchy title, but he did a great job of humanizing our participants and, and telling it from their points of view. And, you know, you mentioned that Charles talked about human, uh, the manager of the farmer's market was a participant this year. And, and she was quoted in there saying, there's this animal side of you. And, you know, we all understand that as hunters, you know, they're just getting that taste of it, but it's, uh, you know, obviously for the food, a connection with nature, um, that's what we're hearing from our hunters, and, and they're they're really um, it, it's really fulfilling to, to everybody. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You mentioned a second ago how um, you know the 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 way that one of these adult onset hunters might be thinking and approaching a hunt in many cases is so different than someone like, like myself, uh, who, you know, do what you guys talked about earlier. Like hunting was never even a question for me. Like it was just what we did from the, the, as soon as I was walking, I was up at our deer camp and I never experienced a single moment of life where I didn't consider myself a hunter and surrounded by hunters. It, there was never a bit of thought that ever went into it. I never mindfully made the decision or ever had to think about why do I do this? Um, I never had that for most of my life. It wasn't until, you know, a young adult in my twenties that I really started thinking about those things myself. It had always just been what I did. Um, but I feel like in a lot of these cases, mm-hmm. these adult onset hunters, they're very, um, mindful about what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. It probably took them a lot of time and thought to come to the decision to, to do this because they have to really approach this in a thoughtful manner because no one made the decision for them when they were kids, you know? Um, so it's gotta be interesting to get to engage with people that are, you know, dealing with that kind of swamp of emotions and questions when it comes to, do you want to start, you know, as you said, Charles, engaging in this natural cycle of life and death. That is a, that's, it's a really compelling thing, but it's a serious thing too. Um, but you guys talked about the, like all sorts of different types of people you're meeting, especially if you're going to go somewhere like, like a college town, like Athens and go to the farmer's market. If that is, is the group of people that are, you know, really receptive to this, it's probably fair to say that a lot of hunters might, um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of like an intimidation factor or a, this person's different than me factor, or will I be able to relate to these types of people? Cause, cause like you were saying, Hank, in many cases we are relatively insular. Many times we do kind of hang out with our own little type of people doing our own little type of thing. Um, and a guy 
with suspenders and gauge earrings and a cutoff plaid shirt and tight jeans might not be like the usual person you hang out with. Have you guys experienced anything or do you have anything to share with people listening right now that are thinking, man, I want to help get some more people into it. But this trend of like the hipster folks or urban folks getting into it, gosh, I think that'd be uncomfortable. or I don't really want to do that. Uh, can you speak at all to just your experiences interacting with some different folks, um, folks in different backgrounds, different cultural, you know, experiences, what that's been like, any advice for someone trying to, you know, connect with some different types of people in this kind of goal with this kind of goal? Yeah. So let's, let's step back a little bit to what you were saying initially, you know, you started hunting as a kid and so did I, and there was no choice, you know, that was just something that we were going to do. Well, think about coming into that as an adult and having all those emotions and making that decision and that thought process was probably a pretty heavy thought process. Think about how intimidating it is to try to start hunting once you're an adult. I mean, it's, there's an incredible amount of skills development, you know, hunters as a community traditionally haven't been that welcoming, you know, to, to outsiders, like we're talking about, we're trying to shift the culture of hunting to make it a more welcoming activity. And in, one of the biggest things that we need to remember is that, you know, hunting is activity for, for everybody. It's a very, it's one of the, the most human activities that we have left other than reproduction that we still partake in. And it's, you know, it's something that transcends societal, political, and religious boundaries. It's activity for anybody that wants to source their own all-natural food or that enjoys the outdoors. Um, and this message focusing on the hunting for ecological reasons and hunting for the food, like Hank mentioned earlier, we know from the polls that over or about 80% of the general public in the United States accepts hunting for those reasons. So if you're going to get out there and take somebody hunting with you, then those are the messages to stick with. And, you know, just sticking to the facts about natural food, ecological reasons, the funding source, the North American model, that's going to resonate with everybody. You're going to focus on the common ground of what resonates with people. Stay away from politics. Stay away from religion. You're not going to find two subjects that are going to divide people quicker, no matter where you stand. So that would be the the main message is one realize that the number of hunters in the United States directly relates to the quality and quantity of sporting opportunities that we're going to have, not to mention all of the wildlife conservation benefits, but just from a selfish hunting perspective, the more hunters we have, the better off you're going to be. You might think, well, I want less hunters. So I have more room on a public piece of property. Well, that public piece of property is not going to be there anymore, or at least not be open to hunting if we get down to a certain percentage. Mm -hmm. So it's just something, it's very important for everybody to remember that this is something we all need to be advocates for. We need to take anybody that's interested. And it's, I think Hank's probably going to touch on this later, but we've seen a lot of the mentors come through and, and kind of have that hesitancy and then later on be surprised, but wow, I had no idea to have that much in common with, with these people. So it's, it's a pretty interesting topic, but the bottom line is we need everybody to get out there, start taking people hunting, 
And we also need existing base of hunters to understand that funding model and why it's so important to conservation. Um, there was a study done not too long ago where it showed that only 30% of hunters actually knew how hunting benefits conservation right. about PR funds and the Robinson funds and the rest of it. So the more that, that we can do like on this podcast or you can do when you're talking about it or anybody writing articles or pushing messaging out there, we get everybody to understand why it's important uh, from a conservation standpoint as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we, you know, we've had these participants to come through, um, one one gentleman's name was Ron. I think he was probably around 50 years old. He worked for a roofing company locally. And, you know, we we get there that first night and we ask everybody to go around and to introduce themselves, you know, who they are, what they do, and, and why they want to learn to hunt. And he said that, you know, there were, you know, six or eight offices uh, down his hall and all of them had deer heads hanging in them except his and no one had ever invited him to go deer hunting. Um, you know, I think, I think adults are very hesitant to ask other adults for help or to do something. They, you know, maybe that's something we feel is more childish or something. Um, but then we also have participants like Jen, who Charles mentioned earlier about the human comment. Um, but I call Jen a homesteader. Um, she's a really awesome, um, you know, she's a graduate student here at UGA but, um, you know, has been an ex-vegan vegetarian. But she went, she used to go, or still does, she's active in a women's homesteading group. She goes on these, like, outdoor skills weekends. And I have to imagine that, like, the people at these things that are teaching people how to tan hides or, or whatnot are hunters. And so I asked her one day, I said, you, you know, you never asked one of them or ever been invited? And she talked about, well, she's like you know, been off the cuff invited twice, but when she followed up on it, it, it seemed like she was burdensome. So, you know, a big success of our field to fork program is a, we're going to this, you know, we're going to a place to find them. We're going to them. And, um, you know, we are offering a message that we are here for you. This is something we're doing. If you'd like to be involved, sign up. It's not that you're going to be a burden. We're doing this. Join us. Um, and so, that, you know, that's a cognizant effort. A lot of the Learn to Hunt programs, in my mind, don't do a good enough job of that. You know, they do sign-ups on a, on a state agency website. Well, you know, what non-hunter knows about the state agency? Uh, you know, so we need to be cognizant to get in front of new audiences, and we need to diversify our hunter base, and that's a, the focus of field to fork but at the same time when you get these diverse candidates yes there's initial hesitation from some of our more traditional mentors but when they realize that they are valued that their experience and their opinion is valued by these uh you know these diverse people it's empowering to them and they realize that they can coexist and they can all you know bond uh, in this shared desire to hunt. And, um, and and so we've seen that, even with some colleagues of mine at QDMA, some of them showed that hesitancy of, will I be able to interact with these people that are different from me? Um, you know, and, and the answer is, is they've realized they can and they're empowered by it. And, uh, and it's been hugely successful and everybody gets along and, 
drinks some beer and you know tells their story and and has a good old time yeah, yeah we've we've seen hesitancy from our whole industry too in the past years hank and i were talking about this we'd go to meetings and start talking about targeting the food focused individuals and you know we'd get some eye rolls and things like that and then all of a sudden wall street journal happens and now everybody's talking about it so it's good it's it's things like that that are going to push the needle i was in the airport coming back from the archery trade association meeting and uh, or trade show in louisville kentucky and that was shortly after that article came out and at 5 a.m i'm in the line for starbucks getting some coffee before i catch my flight and i let this couple go in front of me that were headed to antigua i think and we start talking and they were asking you know what i was doing there and i told them what i did for work and the gentleman popped up and he was like you know hunting is actually declining and that's a big problem because it supports the majority of conservation in this country. And I was like, did you read the wall street journal? And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> so just the impact of articles like that on the general public are unreal and potentially generating interest, you know, that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, that front, um, that, the Wall Street Journal did an article on CWD, another big focus to QDMA, uh, a couple of weeks later. And so I was, I was speaking to the writers, and they wouldn't give me exact numbers. But, you know, that Wall Street Journal article was trending on Apple News four or five days later. Um, it, it got picked up from some other news sources. But he told me it had 100 times their typical page views for an article. And to me, that just shows that there are so many people out there that are interested. I don't know if they'll ever participate, but this is in, an interesting topic for people. Um, maybe it's that primal. Maybe it's that all of us have this natural desire or interest. But, I mean, for for some article uh, about crossbow, you know, and, and a few hipsters going hunting to make the cover of the Wall Street Journal shocked us. And... Um, and it really did uh, give an opportunity to kind of paint hunting in a different light. And we've gotten tons of, you know, calls and emails. And, and, and some of it's fortunate, some of it's unfortunate, because it shows that people don't consider hunting in this light, even current hunters. And, of course, you know, the, the flack that I've seen, uh, I read all the comments, but current hunters may be our biggest critic in, in some regard. We're getting a lot of the anti-crossbowing sense crossbow sentiment, crossbowing, and, of course, the keep the yuppies in the cities kind of thing. But, you know, from a whole, I, I think, you know, it was kind of uh, enlightening and inspiring that it's it's something that people want to talk about or read about. Yeah, man, there are a few things that will piss me off as much as seeing someone try to talk badly about someone like this who might want to give it a shot because they're a quote-unquote hipster or something. You do see these comments like, ah, keep them in the city, or these guys like to come out here with their plaid shirts and their big beards and pretend they're big bad hunters now. Uh, well, they'll never be real like I am. Like, come on. That's, that stuff's so it, – it's not helping at all. If, if you want to feel good about yourself and try to prove that you're more legitimate than someone who wants to give this thing a try and uh, – that's how you're going to make yourself feel good about yourself. Great. But I have no interest in uh, you being a part of what we're trying to do here. That is, is so self-defeating and discouraging to see. Fortunately, that's probably just a, a vocal minority who, who is going to be negative about just about anything. And, um, 
I know that the, the the vast majority of folks, I think, can understand what you guys are getting at here, and and the 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 overwhelmingly positive impact this kind of thing can have. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Something worth noting, I think, is the fact that you guys are tapping into and focusing on this adult demographic. There has been a lot of talk in previous R3 efforts about trying to get kids involved in hunting, which of course is a great thing. Um, But I think there have been some studies or some theories around the fact that targeting adults is more effective for long-term recruitment. Is is that right? Am I remembering this correctly? Isn't it something along the lines of the fact that the the adults just simply have the means and the ability to to keep up with hunting versus taking a kid out once and unless they have someone who can continues taking them, taking them, taking them, they drop off. Is there something to back that up? Yeah, there's there's definitely something to back that up. Youth programs for hunting are worthless. Well, Hold on, let me finish my statement here. i got to finish pissing everybody off before I get done. Seriously, though, they are. And it's because if you do a quote-unquote youth program for hunting and you teach a kid how to hunt, that doesn't do any good unless you teach their parent how to hunt as well because they will have no one to take them back out unless you as the mentor are going to take them every time they want to go hunting and make them continue along this process and help them along, which if you're going to do that, that's great, but that's not how these youth, youth programs go. So 
when you do a youth program and you don't teach the adults, so you don't have it as a family program, then you have a bunch of kids that have a great experience one weekend and then they can never continue to do it again until they're out on their own. Um, when you do an adult program, you are teaching people that have authority in their own lives. So even if they came from an anti-hunting family, which a lot of these people did, anti-hunting or anti-gun families, I mean, they grew up in a, a place where their parents would have never let them do this as a child. And now they're adults and they're making their own decisions and they decide to do this. They have transportation. They have potentially discretionary income, you know, funding to use for outside activities. And then they also have, you know, that one of the most important things, bringing it back to the traditional process that we talked about, how you and I started hunting, they might already have kids or they're going to have kids one day of their own, most likely. And they're going to teach those kids how to hunt through that natural time intensive process. So what we've seen with the youth programs from over 400 programs looked at nationally is that the majority of youth programs in this country were the kids of the existing base of hunter. So it was this one, you have this community that's marketing to already hunters about these programs. And then, you know, whoever it is is seeing a great opportunity to get their kid on a free hunt, you know, and that's just, that's just kind of how things go. Or at least their kids from, hunting communities and hunting cultures where they were going to have that opportunity regardless. They're not really tapping into any new audiences. So we're staying within that same 5% bubble. I mean, I, I helped out with a youth hunt when I first started, I was guiding this turkey hunt and luckily this program involved the parent as well. So it was better in that respect because we were teaching the parent as well, but it was still a youth focus. And this kid whips out his cell phone and starts showing me what he killed in New Zealand the week before. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> so I stand by my youth programs, a worthless statement. Hank can take it away and disagree. Well, I would, I would absolutely agree that uh, youth are the least efficient audience that we could take hunting. And our goal is to create hunters, to create licensed buyers. That has to be the goal of our programs. Uh, you know, that's the goal of our three. Um, and we've traditionally run a lot of heartstring programs, um, you know, that focus on youth and military and, um, you know, handicap. And while many of them are good, um, you know, they aren't moving the needle. And, um, you know, we accumulate, we've run a lot of youth hunts that I wouldn't agree were worthless. <laughs> uh, because we we were very diligent, just like in Field of Fork, that we selected youth from non-hunting backgrounds. Um, but again, you know, it can be hard to find good candidates because just like we talked about at the beginning, you know, these hunters don't know non-hunters, quote unquote. Um, so, yeah, uh, focusing on adults is a much better use of our time. We talked about the bubble earlier. You know, the baby boomers are aging out of the sport. We're going to lose another couple of percent of participation if nothing happens. We don't have 15 or 20 years for Johnny to get out of college and become a licensed buyer again. We need to be looking at who can go hunting the next weekend, who can purchase a license, and we're seeing that in the program. We had one gentleman, Edwin, 
who purchased 25 one-day license for the state of Georgia the first year we took him hunting. He also put two or three deer in his freezer at the UGA, four deer at the UGA disease lab he works at, um, and sent an email on the listserv and said, have at it, Here's there's venison in the freezer. Ended up mentoring five new hunters that year once he shared his venison and made these connections. And so you can see this, you know, domino effect or, you know, instant, uh, instant rewards. Like this guy is going out and he's mentoring his friends. He's sharing his venison. He's telling his story. He's, he's now in two years, uh, harvested 10 deer and taken 10 new hunters afield. Wow. Um, and, and, and we're working on some videos. So you'll meet Edwin, um, in the coming months, but, um, you know, it, it, he's not the only one. Um, and, and we're seeing this, but, you know, the, the shocker to me during, you know, the whole program is, you know, they come in and, and to the education part, they want to learn about the ecology of it as Charles has referenced a few times. And that's because they know that they're going back to their peer group and they're going to tell them about it and they, they want to be able to defend their actions. And so they're very much concerned about the ecological aspect of hunting, which shocked me. Um, you know, I think, oh, we're here for the food, but they're going back to, you know, their peers and they're telling that story and they're becoming an advocate for hunting and ambassador for hunting in entirely new circles and demographics. And, um, you know, they're referring their friends the next year. Uh, we, you know, we, we have people on waiting lists now for Athens. Um, but, you know, people of very, very different backgrounds all, um, you know, Edwin told me the other day that we're making him poor because he's buying hunting gear, which we can all relate <laughs> to. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's, it called him, you know, he, he's, he's full bore now. And well, that would not happen with the youth, obviously. Yeah. Well, you guys have obviously tapped into something here, an opportunity that is available and, and seems to be, you know, leading to the results that we need to see given all the trends. Uh, so it's a proven model, but it does seem to be the question is how do we scale it? How do we take what you guys have, have created and tapped into and proven to be a successful way of, of bringing new hunters in the fold? How do we actually get that out there to the rest of the folks? Because what you're doing is awesome, but it's, you know, eight hunters a year, 15 hunters a year. How can we get to the point where the tens of thousands of folks listening to this and the millions of other hunters out there that hopefully will be um, presented with ideas like this? How do we start taking some of these things into into action, put these things into action? Because um, if we could all participate in something like this and all of us have a hand in bringing a new hunter into the fold each year or each community bringing a new 15 in a year, um, then we are making a really big significant difference. So my, my question I want to pose to you in two parts. I would like to know how you would propose we do this on an individual level. So how could each one of us um, take some of these things into account on, a, on an individual level with a mentorship, maybe a one-on-one -on -one type thing? Or part number two would be if someone listening loves what you're doing with Field of Fork and wants to start a Field of Fork operation in their community, how do we do that? That's my part one and part two question. Feel free to take with it, uh, take it wherever you want. All right. So, you know, we've we've long said that, you know, in a short-term basis, you know, an organized program is, is hard to get to move the needle and it, it all comes down to scalability. But 
Um, you know, individual hunters can move this needle, as we spoke earlier, instantly tomorrow, this season. And we need all hunters to, to understand it's their duty. Uh, it, it's, it's their duty for the future of hunting, for the sake of, you know, future generations and, and the habitat and wildlife that they love, that they need to mentor a new hunter each year. And if we all did that, you know, game over. We say that an organized program is hard to move the needle, but then, you know, all of a sudden you're on the cover of Wall Street Journal and you, you made a much larger impact than the 33 participants that have gone through the program in Athens, Georgia in three years. But, um, you know, field to fork is scalable. I, I think you could replicate field to fork throughout the country. And so last year we set a goal to try to do that. And so we, we took field to fork to eight new states. Um, and, you know, in your home state of Michigan, for example, we ran a field to fork at the tip of the mitt branch, Mike Wolf, and we partnered on the already existing Learn to Hunt in uh, in Michigan with NWTF and Steve Sharp, and we're going to continue to do that. I've always instructed my colleagues to partner with existing programs that we can help to evolve before we go out and create another one. You know, so. So that is our first push. If there is an existing learn to hunt program, to try to evolve it to, you know, use the field to fork model. But where they don't exist, we've been re- replicating the model. We've created standardized curriculum, sample agendas. We're working on a couple videos right now that will give a good uh, picture of field to fork and a lot of the participant um, point of view. And I think they'll be very beneficial for showing it. You can go to qdma.com slash field to fork and see our written summaries and um, some old videos. But we want to do everything we can to help replicate field to forks around the country. And so we're trying to inspire our QDMA branches as well as anybody who would be interested in hosting a field to fork to contact me. Uh, my email is on QDMA. I can, I can tell it to you right now. It's all, you know, all the, all the summaries of the field to fork program, which are all online. So you can find it there. But um, we understand that as we replicate it, you know, each model will look a little different. So um, I kind of took it under uh, my wing to try to test some of these different replications around the country last year. So I flew to New Hampshire and hosted a field to fork for industry. We had to cap it at 24 because we had to actually host a hunter education day but we hosted 24 employees of Ruger and Sig Sauer, both American firearm manufacturers from New Hampshire and Vermont. And we partnered them with QDMA members from the QDMA New Hampshire branch, or first New Hampshire branch. And we did kind of an organized education, which included hunter education because there was no apprentice license and no online hunter education. So just a quick bleep at a major hurdle that's keeping us from creating new hunters in those states. But um, we, we ran a very successful program. Um, you know, they, they paired up. They had a very short season. You know, down south, we're very fortunate to have these long seasons, long firearm seasons. It's a little bit easier to inspire people to mentor, I feel. But also went to Texas and partnered with BHA, and we hosted a destination field to fork where it was just three days at a ranch in Texas. And... Um, while I wouldn't want to take somebody from New Hampshire and send them down to Texas to teach them to deer hunt, 
you know, that was applicable for residents of Texas. So we only took, you know, in-state people who were first-time hunters that wanted to hunt for meat. And, and as Charles mentioned, we do pre-selection surveys, so we make sure we're getting the candidates that fit, you know, fit the bill. And then we're doing post-event surveys and a survey a year later to really check up on ourselves and gather the data. But, um, you know, we'll have filled the forks in at least 10 states this year, probably more. Gotten a lot of emails um, from people wanting to host filled the forks um, in states that QMA traditionally doesn't cover, and we're not going to abandon those. Uh, Sacramento, California seems to be like number one place to host a filled the fork. I got more emails from Sacramento, California than anywhere uh, from the article. And, um, you know, we're not going to abandon California. California is just getting on board, writing an R3 plan, hiring a state coordinator. So we're going to do what we can to help them to hopefully host build the forks in California. But, um, you know, we're trying to partner with anybody interested. I know uh, in Michigan, again, we're going to do one this year, partnering with BHA. Um, so we're expanding them in the states that we expanded to last year and uh, and, and hope to gain a few more. But um, we're here to help. We're working. Uh, we got a grant from NSSF to help with some of the replication materials and, and some of the videos that will be released. We're working with the Archery Trade Association um you know to to help standardize some of the curriculums and push their members which are industry manufacturers to host build the forks um you know really a lot of people see it as a viable way to to actually create you know lasting hunters and and so um you know we've hosted a field the fork internally pretty much at qdma because you know i had colleagues asking me hey what are you doing up there uh, after work, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in that. So, you know, we hosted employees of QDMA, but I guarantee anybody listening, if you make it a concerted effort to share a little venison or tell a story or ask around, you interact with people all day, every day that are interested in hunting, that do not hunt, that have never been invited. And you should make it your mission to take somebody new this year and do, do it the right way. Put in the time, teach them what they need to know on the front end, take them to the range, get them proficient, you know, teach them, try to do your best to create a new hunter. And uh, it may be your most rewarding hunt this coming season, and it will be the most beneficial hunt for the future of hunting. Spot on. Charles, did you, would you add anything uh, on that front? That was pretty passionate. I don't know if I want to follow that up. <laughs> but uh, basically just... Just take new people hunting. You might be surprised. I, I mean, at the very least, just mentor somebody new each year. You know, pick somebody, ask somebody at your office, one of your friends, your neighbor, whoever, and ask them to go hunting. You can you can take them deer hunting. You could just take them on a squirrel hunt or a dove hunt or whatever it might be. And just get them out there and have some fun. And you, you're probably going to be surprised with how much fun it actually is to teach somebody. I mean, it it can get to the point where it's it's more fun to watch them have success than it is to do it yourself. I mean, we had one mentor named David Kidd that uh, came through the program and served as a mentor for the past few years that he was like, these participants are way more interesting than the people in my hunting club. I should take them all out and invite all these people to come on. You know, it's so whether you do it on your own 
or you want to start a field to fork so you contact Hank, you know, it's just a good time. With the field to fork, food's involved. You know, we all drink beer afterwards and pair wine with the meals and everything. It's just, it's a lot of fun and it's fun to get to know people um, that might have different views than you and be able to explain things a little bit better in ways that you haven't thought about it before because you've been so ingrained in hunting your entire life. Yeah. I will say from my own personal experience. program. Oh, go ahead, Hank. I was just going to say the organized program, really the best part about it, uh, other than the community feel and, and the social support, which is obviously what we've decided is key to creating a hunter is that social support. Um, it puts a date on your calendar. It's easy to say you're going to do something, but it's, it's harder to follow through. And the organized hunt, the value of it is we hope we get a deer and we can break it down and show them. And it, it, but it sets that date on that calendar and it starts the process. And, and that's really the value is, you know, set a date, get it done. But that, that's the value of the program uh, is it just, it holds everybody to it. We're all part of this and, and we don't want to let down our, our buddy or, or nobody wants to let down me and Charles, hopefully, but it just, it puts it on the calendar and gets it started. And then they continue to, uh, you know, hunt through that year. Yeah. I was just going to say, kind of echoing some of the things you both mentioned there, you know, from my own personal experience, just engaging with non hunters. Yeah. Like in my old day job, I worked in like the tech industry and a lot of people from the coasts, a lot of urban folks who had no experience hunting or anything like that. But the level of curiosity and the level of kind of fascination with hunting once, you know, once the topic came up, it, it was very interesting how interesting, how interested these people were in it. And then it was a lot of fun for me just to get to be a part of those conversations and share with them what actually happens and everything that goes into it. It was, it was really surprising to a lot of these folks. They had no idea that so much went in hunting or that there was actually all this management behind it or, or the fact that there were even something like bag limits. Um, just talking about these things was so much fun, let alone then getting to take some of these people out into the woods and do things like that. I mean, that, that is very, very fulfilling. And, and I'm excited about what you guys are doing, the, the results that you're seeing so far. I think it really is an example that we can all learn from. And, and to your point, Hank, the organized model using a framework like what you guys have built with Field to Fork, I think, gives us an opportunity to scale something like this. Um, because, yeah, it's easy to say, I want to mentor more people. Yeah, I want to do these things. But following through on it, actually acting on it is a whole different story. Um, I think by by putting some organization around it and then having, you know, some of the hard things taken out of the equation by way of the fact that you guys have already done the legwork to establish curriculum, to establish some of these frameworks. I think that is what people need. And so I'm pumped about it. I'm really appreciative of what you guys are doing. And I want to make sure that we make this as easy as possible for people that are intrigued and excited by this to take action. So Hank, um, as risky as this might be, can you give us that email address right now that people can reach out to you at? And then exactly where on the website can they find more of these resources? I want to make sure if someone right now wants to start a field to fork, um, I want to give them step one and step two, exactly what to do right now when they get done listening. What what would that be? So all the information is at QUMA.com slash FTF, FTF. And my email is H. F-O-R-E-S-T-E-R at QDMA.com, H Forster at QDMA.com. Um, reach out to me. I'm here to 
answer any questions, whether you're uh, uh, somebody who would like to participate in the Field to Fork or um, host the Field to Fork, just uh, reach out to me. But again, qdma.com slash FTF has all the summaries of the three years in that and some summaries of some of the other programs um, and then some of the news and, and another podcasters too and, and the things we've done on Field to Fork. But you can find all the information compiled there. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, to all you guys and girls listening, light Hank up. Hit him up. Take advantage of this great resource that, that Hank and Charles are putting together for us all to uh, to do some really good, positive things out there in the world because it, this stuff really matters. It really, really does. If we want to keep hunting as a as a part of our lives moving forward for decades to come, this kind of work is necessary. And um I'm really excited to see what we can do with, with what you guys are putting out there. So Hank and Charles, man, thank you for doing this, and thanks for taking the time to chat about it. Hey, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, Mark. And uh, I think with that, we'll wrap it up. Hank and Charles, always feel free uh, if you want to hop back on the show sometime and talk about how the next couple of years' worth of Field the Fork uh, events have gone. Would love to uh, would love to keep this conversation going. Absolutely, and we got, we got more in store, so... Uh... So yeah, hopefully they'll be more available for them in the coming years. Sounds good. And that is a wrap. So thank you for tuning into this one. Thanks for listening here uh, about what, as we've said over and over, is a very important issue. My my big hope and takeaway from this, uh, I'm not going to ask for anything else today other than please try to take someone new hunting this year. You know, Take the things that Charles and Hank talked about put them into action. I'm going to do my best to do the same thing this year. Let's all do a little something positive this season, and uh, hopefully it's going to help us all in the long run. So with that, I will thank you all for listening. I will thank you for being a part of this community. You guys are the best. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.